Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a psychotherapist and author based in West Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictions. Welcome to our podcast, which I call It's Not About the Sex, also the title of my recent book. Here we focus on all topics related to compulsive sexual behavior, often referred to as sex addiction. In particular, we explore ways to build long-term sustainable recovery while establishing more meaningful connection and greater intimacy. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints, brand new perspectives, and practical user-friendly tools toward living a more deeply connected life. Let's get started. Hello, Sue. Hello, Andrew. How are you today? I'm doing really well, actually. Michael's coming into town. You know, it's the birthday weekend, so right. I'm looking forward to that. And it's always good to see your loved ones. Well, not right. always, I guess, but... <laughs> well, hopefully more times than not. <laughs> but I, I just want to say for those who don't know who Michael is, Michael is your son, mm-hmm. and Michael and I share a birthday. You do. And Michael yeah. is also our podcast social media guru. He certainly is, and very, very reliable. I'm very grateful for both of you. Oh, that's fun. I love it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We do have fun, don't we? We do. (laughs) Yeah. So today, Sue, we are going to be talking about intimacy avoidance. And a lot of folks call it love avoidance, but, but I use the word intimacy because I think it's more of a global term that captures love and intimacy and some other things mm. as well. But we're going to be talking about intimacy avoidance today. So why don't we jump right in? Excellent. Why do you think um, people avoid intimacy? And isn't it true that we all really want intimacy in our life to be loved and to love? Well, the, this is a really big question. You know, I, I believe that we all want intimacy and most of us resist intimacy. So it's really part of the human condition that there's this tension between wanting love, desiring love and to feel loved and lovable. And at the same time, having different kinds of barriers to intimacy and and to love. So just to define my version of intimacy, because there's so many different ways that we can talk about intimacy, right, Sue? No, yeah. Yeah. So one way of looking at it is that when I get to be fully myself with you and you get to be fully yourself with me, and we really enjoy, we, we enjoy getting to know one another, we enjoy being together, and we enjoy, enjoy what I call deeper contact with one another, now that's intimacy. And, and because we've known each other a long, long time, a long, long time, um, we, I don't know about you, but I, I don't even think about our intimacy. Like our intimacy as friends is very deep mm-hmm. and historic and has roots to it. So it's, it's really based on years and years and years of trust and respect and really believing in one another. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, that and, Did you say trust? Because I think that's a big one. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, for sure. Um, Can I just go back a little bit? Um, Please. Yes. So I'm just like woke me up when you said that um, it doesn't come easy for a lot of people. And does it, I just wonder the opposite end of it. Does it come really easy for some people? It comes easier for some people. Okay. 
but some people have way more difficulty with it and some people have more ease with it. You know, you and I grew up in families that had difficulties with intimacy. And so our role models of intimacy, our experience of intimacy and trust and respect, et cetera, was, was really limited as kids. And what often happens is that template, it, it actually becomes our intimacy template as adults, mm-hmm. right? right? So if somebody grows up in a home where there's loving parents and the siblings get along and they enjoy one another, chances are, chances are occasionally this happens <laughs> that occasionally this is a, a template where people feel really uh, at ease with getting close to, to others. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so just to back up in terms of, of why it's part of the human condition. So every single baby that comes into the world has a wish to be loved and to feel lovable. Right. Mm-hmm. But then life happens and, and various things can happen, various kinds of trauma, various kinds of what we call attachment ruptures. And, and that's when the child starts to wonder, is it safe or safe enough to approach others? Uh, Can I trust others? Can I be vulnerable and take emotional risks with others? Right. mm -hmm. So, so really like in my book, I talk about brokenheartedness quite a bit. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about uh, children who have difficulty with intimacy, because we're not born in this world, generally speaking, with intimacy challenges. They're issues that arise as we grow up. I see. Okay, that makes sense. Can you say more about intimacy avoidance? In the rooms of sex and love, addicts, anonymous, people seem to talk quite a bit about love avoidance. Is that the same thing? It really is. I mean, intimacy avoidance is a term that I use and lots of people use, but in the rooms of SLAA, oftentimes they use the term love avoidance and they're really interchangeable. But let me back up because in any of the S programs, the sexual recovery programs, some people refer to compulsive sexual behavior as an intimacy disorder, Mm. an intimacy disorder. Personally, I don't like the term disorder because that's medical model that's a bit pathologizing. I I really see sexual compulsivity as an intimacy problem, Mm -hmm. right? Problems with intimacy. So if you scratch the surface, and this is really important, if you scratch the surface of someone who is sexually compulsive, you're going to find an intimate, an intimacy avoidant style of relating to others. Okay. Okay. Um, Can you say more about avoidant attachment style? Because that seems like a two opposite words to avoid and then to attach. And, And we seem to be hearing more and more nowadays about attachment styles. What does that really mean? So attachment styles are something that we're learning more and more about recently. It's interesting because it goes back decades, Mm -hmm. but it seems like we're talking more and more about attachment to describe the different types of ways of relating to one another and in particular ways of relating with love and intimacy. So we hear a lot about attachment styles, especially in Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. So at the very beginning of attachment theory, 
there were psychologists that used to call themselves the baby watchers. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a funny, funny term, baby watchers. But w- the reason they call themselves the baby watchers is literally they would watch babies to see their how they would attach or not to their caregiver. Oh. And there's all these experiments at the time that would look at how they would react to the facial expression of a mom who was loving and attuned and and really paying attention to the baby Mm -hmm. and how quickly they would feel more secure. Right. On the flip side, if the mom went away or made faces that made them look like they were sad or angry or disappointed, the, the baby would get upset. And, and oftentimes it would result in a baby feeling more insecure if they have a caregiver who is either intermittent or just not emotionally available. Mm. So we could break it down in its largest context to secure attachment and insecure attachment. And what I would say is insecure attachment is really part of most of our lives. There are some people who have more of a secure attachment. It's kind of like self-actualization. We never actually get self-actualized, but we work towards it. And so all of us, I think over time who are conscious and really want to grow are are working towards a secure attachment. Mm -hmm. And underneath of that, I'm not going to get into that at this moment, but there's different styles like anxious attachment, ambivalent attachment, um, avoidant attachment. And so when you hear avoidant attachment, you're actually hearing intimacy avoidance. Okay. Interesting. Okay. It's still confusing to me because it's just, I understand that it's an attachment style. Right. Right. So an avoidant, what would that look like? Let me illustrate with my own story because I think that's the easiest way to do it. So first of all, avoidance is is not a good or bad thing. It's a a survival strategy. Mm -hmm. So it's really when something doesn't feel safe enough or maybe it's too scary for us. So in my family, as I've said before on the podcast, we we, I, I believe we loved one another, but we really didn't have a clue how to love one another. And there was a lot of competition and envy and um, anger and a lot of difficulty knowing how to be close to one another. So what I learned to do basically was go up to my room, close the door, maybe take the dog with me and and listen to to music. That was my way of surviving and and self-soothing. Now, What happened, though, because I grew up in a home that was kind of chilly in that way, is when when I would establish romantic relationships, I didn't trust Mm -hmm. that it would feel safe enough to get close. Right. I I, there's a part of me that really wanted to get close and a part of me that was terrified of getting close. And so that was a great example. And I've worked on this through the years and continue to work on this. Mm -hmm. It was a great example of my avoidant attachment, right? Mm -hmm. That there was that, again, that tension between wanting love and resisting love at the same time. So if someone's listening to this and they have 
like memories of like, oh my gosh, this is what I was doing in my family. These are the types of things that happened, which I think are probably pretty common. Um, our generation anyway, because I think like a lot of it's hereditary things that are not hereditary necessarily in your genes, but things that are passed down and learned and modeled and our parents' parents went through the depression or the war or whatever it was. So it seems like they were a little detached as well. That's um, right. But that, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously generalizing here, but I think when people hear this, um, they can relate to it. And you just touched upon the word awareness, which I think we hear a lot through our podcast. <laughs> um, it's a, it's a common thing, but being, becoming more aware, how does that help you? Mm-hmm. Um, um, if you want to talk about that just a little bit. Of course. So the first part of awareness is knowing your attachment style, knowing that you have issues around avoiding intimacy, right? So if that's an issue for you, it's not something that everybody goes through, like I said, but Mm -hmm. many, many people do. The first awareness is, is really being able to observe oneself and see how that plays out usually in romantic relationships, Mm -hmm. right? So once we're able to name it, then we can move toward healing it. Mm -hmm. And, and I really see the healing as one relationship at a time. And some of that could be romantic relationships and some of that could be friendships. Um, I personally have more difficulty in romantic relationships with the avoidant part of me. Yeah. Yeah. But in friendships, it all, it can also be healing, right? Like Mm -hmm. when we were in college, Sue, we, had a group of friends that learned to enjoy one another, trust one another, respect one another, and and hang out and be be ourselves with one another, right? Right. So there was a lot of intimacy back then. Mm-hmm. And and so I always look back at those days and think of that as such a reparative experience. It was like my first family where I could really feel uh, love in, in a, in a, in a more unconditional way. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think your question is a really good one. I think through friends, of course, through therapy, through 12 step, it's, it's just one relationship at a time and feeling more trusting, more respectful, more ability to lean in and, and take those risks yeah. emotionally. Oh, I like that. Thanks. Sure. So let's look at your book. Um, you talk quite a bit about brokenheartedness and we discussed it here on the podcast. So how does that fit into this discussion? And you touched upon it a little bit, but. Sure. Yeah. Well, what I'll say briefly is that brokenheartedness, of course, can be anything from various types of abuse and neglect to specific types of trauma to uh, different examples of grief and loss, et cetera, et cetera. And when we experience heartbreak, we, we go into self-protection mode, which, which is actually a way of surviving events in our life that are, are just too much to process at the time, mm-hmm. right? That's one way of defining trauma when something is just way too much to process at the time. So we learn to protect our hearts And when that becomes a pattern or a way of being in the world, we learn actually to distance ourselves from others, to regulate the distance from others, which is an example of intimacy avoidance. Oh, okay. So it's creating that distance and 
almost putting up a wall or just, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, it seems like someone who has this attachment pattern would also be profoundly isolated then. Absolutely. Self-protection keeps danger out, but also doesn't allow others to get close. Mm. Like you said a moment ago, it's that wall, right? It protects us, but it keeps others away. So we're protecting ourselves, but unfortunately, nobody can get past them unless we learn to feel comfortable enough to to let people closer. Sometimes that's a glacial process. I know it was for me. And sometimes it's, it's happens in different ways, but having that open heart to let people get closer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I guess therapy plays a big role in that and helping you break down a wall and building up trust instead of building a wall and finding the right people because finding I mean, the right people. Yes. Yeah. Eventually. Because, you know, throughout, time you're going to meet people who don't really serve you or aren't the right match so Mm -hmm. um it's kind of allowing it to happen and being open and still you need to protect yourself to some point but all right so well let's share the story about moulin rouge which i know is one of your favorite movies and more recently i guess a hit show on broadway did you see it on broadway I mentioned that because I actually did see it. Oh, okay. I don't see that many shows on Broadway, but I was there March of 2020, just oh, before right. yeah. the the stay-at-home orders, and I was at a conference, and some friends of mine and I went to see Moulin Rouge. Uh-huh. It was quite a spectacle, I have mm-hmm. to say. It's gotten a lot of awards and things. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't wasn't my favorite musical ever, but it, it definitely was entertaining. Right, so yeah. if you have a chance to see it, it's it's quite a spectacle. <laughs> but but the reason I, I brought up Moulin Rouge and what, what's important to this discussion is that there not that it's um, it's one of my favorite shows, my one of my favorite movies in some ways, but the protagonist is he really reflects a lot of me. And so I'm going to share a little bit about the story for people who aren't familiar. Um, The protagonist is named Christian and he declares that the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. Hmm. Right. He sings it actually. And because of my own challenges with, with intimacy, both longing for and fearing closeness, this is a very, very moving message for me. You know, as he desperately pursued love with someone who is truly unavailable and in the movie and the show, potentially life-threatening to him. So, so Christian's suffering, because he really, really suffered, it, it just escalated when he made ongoing attempts to try and get closer with his object of desire but it remained futile. So, mm. so as much as he tried, it was, it was out of his grasp. And we, we could say that there's definitely some love addiction, um, but also some love avoidance. Sometimes they actually overlap. Yeah, I can understand. Yeah. I haven't seen that movie in a while. I'm going to rewatch it now. I'm just thinking of the music too. 
it's pretty wild. It's, it's, I think the movie is super creative. Some people really enjoyed it and some people did not, Right. but, but yeah. I just thought the story and the, again, the, the, um, spectacle was just quite beautiful to watch. So the unrequited love story of Moulin Rouge, we might also call this the impossible love. Would you say more about that? Sure. So Many years ago, a friend of mine, a psychologist, shared a book with me called Impossible Love. Mm. She, she thought it would speak to some of the issues I was dealing with at the time. And the book is okay. I'm not recommending it necessarily. But the idea of it was, was super interesting to me because if, if we obsess about an unavailable person, right, sometimes referred to as the impossible love, it, it creates even more emotional hunger yeah. and more unsatisfying longings, right? So just to go back to what we said before, giving and receiving love more freely is really, a, it can be a powerful antidote to compulsive sexual behavior. Okay. I'll say that again. Giving and receiving love more freely can be a powerful antidote to sexually compulsive behavior. So when you're able to develop true intimate contact with others, seeking the impossible love actually loses steam and, and sexual sobriety gains traction. So just a few more things about, um, about the book. So um, the author described the suffering and the growing edge that goes along with looking for love in all the wrong places. We've all heard of that before. Mm -hmm. For example, affairs, emotional entanglements, different types of sexual, um, sexually compulsive activities. And although the excitement of, of the adrenaline rush may be supercharged, yep. it, it's it's highly unlikely to be converted into long-term intimacy. It's possible, but just not likely. So the impossible love, in other words, can be a, a wonderful way to learn about yourself, but only if you're able to recognize it, gain perspective on your part in it, and then try and tease out the deeper meaning and purpose beneath your longings. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, there is something you're holding on to something that you can't really get, you know, I guess there's probably a knowing deep down that maybe you're just fighting that and not pe being really honest and aware of what's mm -hmm. going on. But then that just kind of grows and creates its own thing, you know? So yeah, there, there's this program in Kentucky called the bridge to recovery, which I actually worked for when they were out here in Santa Barbara and they have a track of, uh, in their residential program called addiction to misery. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's really what we're talking yeah. about, right? Yep. Yeah. It's easy. It's easy to it is. follow that because you know, the outcome a lot of the time. That's right. It's yeah. familiar. It's yeah. familiar. the well-worn path. Yes. Yes. We know <laughs> that well. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, um, shifting gears now, uh, we both can relate to this because we are dog lovers um, but how can our dogs be our teachers and healers when it comes to intimacy avoidance? I love this question because you and I both know that some of our most intimate moments are with our dogs. I mean, it sounds kind of funny in a way, but 
dogs are our teachers, aren't they? I mean, if, if you have the luxury of owning a pet and I'm, I lean towards dogs, but, but it's actually like an intimacy laboratory, mm-hmm. right? And my dogs ever since I was a kid have always, always been instrumental in my practice of giving and receiving love. You know, because they're so unconditional and they're yeah, so yeah. loyal and they're so loving. And and in that way, pets are incredibly powerful healers because of their instinctual way of loving, right? And if you pay attention, right, if if, if we really pay attention to the free flow of love that, that our dogs offer us, they really demonstrate a rare healing template Mm. of intimacy that that i believe is unsurpassed by humans right they have no expectations no conditions no pressure and they're 24 7 there for us (laughs) exactly it's so true and they i mean i see a lot of dogs where i work which i never thought that would actually be be spoken out loud but i do see dogs every single day and they just bring a smile to your face and i on my way home today i passed two dogs and they were just looking at me and i like made eye contact with them and just it just brings you warmth and i was just so excited to get home to to be with lola um, and it does, it's like walking in that door, it's unconditional love and it's just a great, great feeling. So I definitely, yeah. I definitely understand that powerful healing that they bring. Just, you're just present. They're just present. They're there. You get it. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Nice. And speaking of Lola, how is she feeling? She's amazing they did blood work on her and everything came back fine and they're like she's very young for her age (laughs) and yeah so yeah we just have a decision to make whether or not we want to remove her little cyst but they say sometimes it grows back and sometimes it's best just to leave it what it is so right we're just kind of figuring that out but I, i always feel like we get a little gypped because why don't dogs live longer? Mm. I mean, they really, if I could just change something on the face of the earth, I would have dogs live as long as we do. Yeah. 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 I know. It's like a companion for life. Yeah. For sure. For sure. You know, I want to skip over, I don't want to skip over Lola, but I want (laughs) to skip over um, to uh, a colleague of mine named Phil Flores. Mm. And Um, Dr. Phil Flores is a group therapist, but he also wrote a book called Addiction as an Attachment Disorder, which I thought was fascinating because it came out maybe about 18 years ago. So I I think it was one of the first books that put together the idea of addiction and attachment. Wow. So So, go ahead. Yeah, I know you refer to that book, um, but how would you describe addiction as an attachment? disorder. Right. I'm, I'm going to quote Phil because, and I call okay. him Phil because he's a colleague in, in my organization and nice. we've uh, had some really great talks, but you know, he describes addiction as what he calls a condition of isolation. Okay. We know that a condition of isolation, which often originates with insecure attachments. Okay. So what he says, and this is I think really brilliant. He says that not everyone with insecure attachment experiences will become addicted. Mm. 
right? right? But everyone with an addiction suffers with, with attachment difficulties. Okay. So right? any addiction? Yeah. Any, addi- any addictive what, okay. compulsive behavior. He's saying you, if you go underneath the behavior, there's some kind of attachment rupture. And that's part of really the, the mystery is how do we go underneath there and really investigate what that attachment uh, gap might be. So he also says that addiction occurs when the attachment to a behavior or a substance becomes stronger than the attachment to people and caring, loving, nurturing relationships. And I think that's very poignant because when somebody gets attached to a behavior or a substance, it, it over, um, it somehow gets in the way of real people, right? Mm -hmm. It's like the priority becomes the substance or, and that's really important to remind ourselves because it's not like the the spouse or the parent of of somebody who's dealing with addictive compulsive behaviors is, is doing anything wrong or, or that, that they're, you know, to blame. It's more that the uh, attachment to the behavior or the substance is really getting priority, right? Right. So in terms of, of healing, healing takes place when the attachment to intimate relationships overpowers the attachment to compulsive sex. Okay. Right. I'll say that again. True healing takes place when the attachment to intimate relationships overpowers the attachment to compulsive sex. I, I just think that's so important for us to keep in mind that when we're talking about attachment ruptures, we're also talking about attachment healing, which in theory will make the addictive compulsive behavior diminish. Wow. Yeah. So you're replacing the behavior with the relationships. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I think that's the easiest way of, <laughs> of saying it for sure. It's hard to do. Not easy. Yeah. But take, I mean, but you can do it. I mean, there's obviously success stories. Exactly. So why is it so important to heal these attachment wounds? Well, as you know, and, and many of the listeners know, I, I really like Johan Hari's um, YouTube TED Talk. Mm-hmm. I guess it's a TED Talk that happens to be on YouTube. <laughs> and 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 the name or the, the focal point of his TED Talk is the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. So for, for our listeners who are not familiar with, with him, I really am, encourage you to, to see his TED Talk. It's Johan, J-O-H-A-N-N, Hari, H-A-R-I. And it's just very inspiring. And it really goes along with what we're talking about today. I watched it again after we mentioned it the last time and I put the link in the podcast notes. So I'll do that again with this one, but Perfect. it's worth rewatching because there's a lot to it. Other, you know, that obviously is a big part of it, but um, yeah, he makes a lot of really great points in that, um, in that video. Thank you so much. For, for sure. Sharing. Of course. So what can our listeners do if they want to address and heal intimacy avoidance? What are the action steps? Sure. There, there's 
many, many action steps, but I just came up with a few that I thought we would uh, talk about as we wind down our, our podcast today. Okay. So lean into reliable relationships gradually. And when I'm talking about reliable relationships, I'm talking about emotionally reliable relationships. So again, one person at a time and take your time, pace yourself. Mm -hmm. There's no need to jump into the deep end of the pool. You can ease into it. And there's an idea that goes along with this is the idea of pursuing rather than distancing. Mm -hmm. So the question you might ask yourself is who would you like to pursue as a friend or as a confidant, right? That would be one action step, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then another one would be to do your best to learn to be a giver of love, right? I think there's, there's a part of all of us that, that really is hungry for love, but there's something about being generous with our spirit and generous with our love, even if it's super scary, uncharted territory. So, so the idea is to start to take note of how intimacy really feels. How does it feel in your body? How does it feel in thoughts and, and, and feelings? Just start to track loving moments, both giving and receiving love. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we've already talked, Sue, about our pets. So I'm not going to go on too much about that. But but if you have a pet, be mindful of the relationship, right? Be mindful of the unconditional love and acceptance. And, and if you can, really savor it. You know, there's such a gift in our lives. And if you don't have a pet, consider fostering one or, or volunteering at, at your local shelter. They're always looking for people to help out. And that's a good way to check in with yourself is if you do have a pet to check in with what, how is that making you feel? So you can just kind of evolve that into people relationships. That's right. Cause it is transferable. Yeah. I mean, some people will always gravitate towards animals. I think I may be one of them actually. I, I, which is fine, but hopefully it can be borrowed and, and can be with real people as well. Yeah. Speaking of real people, so one thing that I came up with, which which was this idea of writing a friendship inventory. In the 12 steps, we write a lot of different inventories, yeah. but we don't write friendship inventories. And, and just keep it simple, you know, identify any past relationships that have been most loving, most intimate, and most meaningful. For people who may or may not be in your life today, for people who may or may not be alive today, but just take stock mm-hmm. of, of who those people have been. Cause there's something about knowing where you've been nourished in the past, which helps us understand how we can get nourished in the future. Yeah. That's, right? that's great. I just thought of few and of a few when you mentioned that. So that's yeah. Cool. I'm going to make an inventory. Awesome. Also, Notice along these lines, notice when you feel more trust and more relaxation in relationships. And the reason I mentioned this is because when we're feeling more trusting of others, we actually feel more relaxed mm. and, and vice versa. If we notice ourselves relaxing, we can ask ourselves, oh, I, I feel more trusting of this person that I'm with. 
I mean, with you, Sue, it's like second nature. I mean, I, I just trust you fully and, and I get to relax with you. If mm-hmm. There's no effort. It's right. just, I get to be it's fully easy. myself. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That's nice. It's like a yeah. vacation. For sure. It is like a mini vacation. And then lastly, there are your people and there's the rest of the world. <laughs> so find your people. It's really a lifelong task. You know, if, if, if you start to identify and I'm not talking about quantity, mm-hmm. I'm really talking about these emotionally reliable people that you can count on that are totally in your corner. Um, know that there's your people and there's others, and it's your job to find your people and to cultivate those relationships. And lastly, to, to be the reliable person that you would like to experience with others. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a mirror, whatever you put out, right? For sure. For sure. So I think that takes us to the end of our our episode today. That was great. That was really good. Um, I wasn't sure how we were going to get through intimacy avoidance (laughs) Um, because it's a red hot ticket. So it is. Yeah, it is. And, and, I, I think intimacy as a topic is something you and I can revisit many times in future episodes. And this is just one angle on uh, intimacy or love avoidance that, that really deserves some conversation. Cause I think a, a lot of people trip up on what it really means and what attachment means. And, right. and so I hope we've enlightened, you know, some, some of our folks who are uh, listening to us today and I've really enjoyed uh, the chance to talk with you because it not only reminds me of my own challenges in this area, but it also helps me see how far I've come and how I continue to work on these things. And that's really what it's all about is just continuing to, to try, right? Absolutely. And I love that you offered all these action steps too. So that's fantastic. Sure. I had fun today, Sue. Yeah, and, and that's great. We will resume sometimes sometime soon i'm sure absolutely yes and in the and in the meantime i'm so glad that that you're one of my intimate friends and uh we will talk soon take care it's great chat you too sue bye 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 thank you for listening today it was fantastic to share this time with my colleague, Sue Merlino, and to discuss intimacy avoidance and to talk about how it affects those with sexually compulsive behavior. Be sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes, or please share our podcast on Spotify. And if you do have any topics you would like us to discuss in the future, just let us know. I look forward to you joining us on future podcasts and thanks again for being with us today.